Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also she had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid as out as a square, its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with a reed, 12,000 furlongs, its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was of pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopas, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual's gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. This morning we're still in Revelation 21. Lord willing, we'll be here uh, at least one more week. But I want us to consider the statement in verse 6, which is, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And we're going to look at those words more closely, Lord willing, but it sounds to me like a wonderful fulfillment of words that we had a while ago in Revelation chapter 7. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. A wonderful promise. This Lamb is himself the shepherd, and this shepherd is going to lead his sheep to a place of living waters, a fountain of living water. But that's only the start of it. And the more we find out about this offer, the more wonderful it becomes. So much so that it, I find it very difficult to wrap my arms around it. It's, it's very much a challenge to lay it out in its detail and the fullness of all of its implications. And so what I propose to do this morning is to ask a series of questions about it. What's on offer? What is this offer about? And so that's the first question. What is on offer exactly? Let's make sure that we know exactly what is being offered to us. And secondly, who is making the offer? Because that's just as important, if not more so. Probably it is more important. Not just the content of what is being offered, what is being promised, but of who is making the offer to us. And thirdly, who is the offer for? Because a lot of good it would do if this offer were to other people and it did not apply to us. We need to understand who the offer applies to. And fourthly, what are the terms? What's the small print? Isn't that the thing? You have an offer that comes through an advert in the mail and there's a huge, huge glossy thing and written in very simple, easy to understand language that says how wonderful the offer is. Sounds so wonderful, so free. And then you read the small print, the terms and conditions, and you find out it's not so great. Well, I think it's good and right to be cautious sometimes because men are such liars. They tend to be thieves. They tend to want to swindle us out of things. And it is only right that we should take a very critical eye to every offer that is given to us. And very often when we do that, The magnitude, the greatness of that offer is going to be diminished, and it won't seem so great. But I want to say, if I'm not going to to spoil the end, I want us to understand that that's not going to happen here. Because the more we look at it, the more close we zoom in, the more with a critical eye that you take to this offer, the better it becomes. It doesn't diminish it in the slightest. It only enlarges it and makes it appear to be more. And that's the point here. Because we don't want to simply slip over these words that we've read before and not grasp just how magnificent they are. We don't want to grasp any aspect of this offer for who it is and what it does and who's offering and what the terms and conditions might be. So again, what is the offer? Well, it's everlasting life. Who's making the offer? The eternal Son of God, the Alpha and the Omega. Who is the offer for? Those who are thirsty. Just that. Those who are thirsty. And what are the terms? Well, we'll see soon enough. So this morning we're talking about the offer. The offer that is given to us in Revelation 21. 
verse 6. Well, what's on offer here? That's our first point, first question, what's the offer? Well, three things in escalating magnitude. All right? The first of it is to, to drink from the fountain of life. That's the basis of this, to drink from the fountain of life. I will give of the fountain of the water of life. What is that? Well, clearly it's something life-giving. If it's the water of life, clearly it's something beneficial to us. But this is mentioned actually throughout Scripture. It's mentioned back in the Psalms, for instance, Psalm 36, 7. How precious is your loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures, for with you is the fountain of life. It is something abundantly satisfying. You get the sense that when someone comes to this river, they want nothing more. There's nothing left to be had. It's something pleasurable. You give from the river of your pleasures. It's life-giving. And mainly, it is within the gift of God to give this thing, to give this water of life. Now, the water, the fountain, is not something apart from God. It says, with you is this river of life. But it's not something apart or external to God. Because as we read somewhere else in Jeremiah 17, 13, it says this, They have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. In other words, it's a description of God. It's a title of God, one of the divine titles. The Lord himself is even a name for him. The Lord, the fountain of living waters. The Lord himself is in some way this fountain of living waters. And we wonder how that is. Is it's not the first thing that comes to our mind when we think of God. We don't immediately think of him as a fountain of living water. But we, let's just, first of all, we have to remember that God is triune and that though these three persons are in complete unity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they have different roles to play in the, redeem, the work of redemption. So we have to understand that. And we get a little bit of clue next, in the very next chapter of Revelation, in Revelation 22.1, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, those of you who are very sharp on your theology may recognize that language. Why? Because our creeds and our confessions echo that language when it's talking about the Holy Spirit, the one who proceeds from the Father and from the Son, speaking of the Holy Spirit. And that's, of course, precisely what we find throughout the Gospel of John when it's speaking of this water. It's speaking of the God's Holy Spirit. John 4.13, Jesus answered and said to her, speaking of the woman of the well, which is the great picture of all this, the woman of the well who comes thirsty, who comes as a sinner, comes in great need. And Jesus speaks, whoever drinks of this water, this physical water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up in everlasting life. And what we have to see by that is that Jesus is not offering a drink that is just going to satisfy your thirst temporarily. He's not just giving something that is temporary and, and apart and then it's extinguished, it's gone. No, what he's offering is something that will become in you a fountain of living water, a source of life that never goes away. And what he's saying is, that the very source of life, the Spirit of God himself, is going to live within you. And that's not just a guess, that's just not an inference, that's what is explicitly told us in John 7, 37. 
Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. He's standing in the marketplace and he's crying out to people. Those who thirst, let him come to me. And they will receive this living water of the Holy Spirit of God within them as a source of life that cannot be extinguished, that cannot be exhausted, that will never dry up. This is what is an offer, the Spirit of God, who is able to make the dead alive, who is able to make dirty sinners to be clean, who is able to give to the dead eternal life. Now, for those who recognize what that means, that is enough. Because what is an offer is God himself, ultimately. Drinking of this, living, this fountain of living waters means that what is an offer is that God is offering his own spirit to you. But, for those who say, don't we get anything tangible? Isn't there something beyond that? It sounds very uh, ephemeral. It doesn't sound very solid and real. Well, don't we get something tangible? Yes, we do. Because besides getting this living water, besides getting the Holy Spirit, we also inherit all things. You know, throughout the scripture we have an idea of some sort of inheritance. In the Old Testament, it's the people of God walking into a physical inheritance of the promised land. And that's the picture that's given to us. But in the New Testament, we understand that there's some sort of inheritance awaiting us in, in heaven. Ephesians 1.11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Don't know what it is, but we've obtained it. In Colossians 3.24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, whatever that is. But you see, one of the functions of the book of Revelation is to explain what that inheritance is, to show us what it is. And that's what this chapter in particular has been, to show us the new heavens and the new earth. Now, For those, again, who are just thinking in terms of some little thing, just a mansion, just a street of gold that you were hoping to have, a portion of some of these wonderful things, you might be happy to find out that in verse 7 it says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, not some, all things. So not just one mansion, not just one street of gold. Because clearly our ambitions, our hopes, our thoughts, our imagination has been too limited. It's been just constrained because of the way that we think of things on this earth. That there isn't enough to go around and some get more than others. And we're just hoping to get some, maybe hopefully more than, than someone else. But what Jesus says is on offer here is that you inherit all things. And that is, of course, the nature of what we found in this new heavens and the new earth. This, the beauty of these things, that it is all ours to enjoy. And it's so much better, by the way, than any earthly inheritance. Because any earthly inheritance, it falls away. It, it doesn't remain. It, it, um, uh, whether through inheritance tax, whether through the ravages of time, the things that are inherited 
don't last. But what it says in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's incorruptible. It's undefiled. It does not fade away. This is the kind of inheritance that is on offer for us. It's all things, and none of these things are ever going to fade away. So what do we have so far? We have eternal life by partaking of God himself and his Holy Spirit. We are going to inherit all things. And you wonder, is there anything left to add to that? Well, if you were incredibly ambitious, you might just say yes. I don't just want to partake of everything that God can give to me aside from him. I want to become part of his family. Right? Do you think of the dream of a little girl marrying into the, the royal family and the situation of the royal wedding not so long ago that reminds us that such things can happen in this world just for a very few? And of course, there are many limitations and things that make it not quite as wonderful as it otherwise might be. But if you're really, really greedy, besides wanting all things, because that's what you already have, to inherit all things, you also might want to be part of God's own family. Well, that is precisely what is on offer. Because in verse 7 it says, I will be his God and he shall be my son. And again, it is speaking to us as if we were the, the only one receiving it. He's not speaking in some, some huge big group, although that is true. But as the offer is articulated to us, it says, he will be my son. Words seem to be a reference to 2 Samuel 7.14, when God was promising that he would be a father to, to David, King David's son, Solomon. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And amazingly, this offer is extended now to us, that we can be adopted into the divine family. And that's just what was said so long ago when the, this church began in John chapter 1. As many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So it's not a situation of when these things, these external things, and you've got to grasp this, these external inheritance, when those things wear out, when those things are done, it is not a matter of when those things happen, that, that's the end of what, the good things that we get. Because the reason that we inherit all things and the reason why this inheritance does not fade away is that we become children of God. How long does God last? Forever. What is the nature of our inheritance? It's not a one-time gift that has been given and then the payment is done with and it's up to you to make sure you uphold those things. It's that rather you have been adopted into the family. And that therefore these things are inherently yours. Everything that God has, you have. No exceptions. We get what he has. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this offer is beyond merely interesting or impressive. It's breathtaking. It's an offer beyond which nothing can conceivably be added. What can you add to that offer, please? Tell me if you can think of something that could possibly be added to all things. To partaking of God himself and of moreover being adopted into his divine family. There's nothing that could possibly be added. Nothing that can be given is not on offer there. 
And you need to understand that's, that's what on, on offer, you see. Well, secondly, who's making the offer? It says, I will give. That I is emphasized. It is, in the text, it is an unnecessary addition to the text, I. I, even I will give. Because, you know, good intentions are nice, but sadly that's not always enough. What matters when someone is making an offer to us is that the person be in a position be, be in a position to actually make it happen. I don't, haven't, uh, don't know exactly how these things work anymore, but uh, not so long ago there's a, a system of in car dealerships that the individual salesman can make an offer, but he has to, or you make an offer to him, but then he has to go check with his sales manager. And it, may, it just might happen if you've made a really, if the, the offer is really good, that actually in the end the sales manager says, no, you, that's, that's too good of an offer. And I won't, you don't have the authority to do that. And in the other hand, you have a situation with someone with, uh, with regard to their longevity. Let's say that someone did have the authority to make an offer to you, and let's say that you've, I don't know, you've gone online and there's some sort of service or, or a, uh, a good that you, you get from them and some specialist company and you make an order to them and you don't hear back and you don't hear back and then you find out that they've died. Well, they're gone. There's nothing more that you can't get that which you were hoping to get no matter how good the offer was because they're not around anymore. They don't have the longevity to pull it off. Well, we need to understand, because if either of those two things are the case with the one who's making us this offer, then we have something to fear, because it might not pan out. So we've got to be very clear who we're dealing with, and what it says in our text is that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And that's such an important message in Revelation. It is repeated not just once or twice, three times, but actually four times, twice at the beginning and twice at the end. Revelation 1.8, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And in verse 11, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. But then in the end, that was in, in chapter 1, we have in our text, 21 verse 6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. But then almost to the very end of the whole Bible, in verse 13, 22, 13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He says it more than once. It must be important. It must be something significant over and over and over again. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Why? Because what he's trying to say is he has that longevity. He's not going anywhere. He's not some part of the creation that might pass away and however long. Even create, it was amazing to find in the new heavens and the new earth that in fact all the things that we see here are going to pass away. The very things that we think are most solid in this world will burn. The elements themselves melting with fervent heat. And there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation to these things. But he's saying, I'm not part of the creation that's subject to change. I am the beginning and the end. And, of course, ultimately it means that he is God because that is, of course, part of the divine name. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And that's part of his divine identity, so much so that that is his name. I am that I am. I am who I am. Not I was something, but I'm not that anymore. Not that I hope to be something in the future because nothing can be added to him. There's nothing that he is now that he, he, he was not from the beginning. 
No, being this self-existent one is the nature of God. That's why he calls himself, I am who I am. Yahweh, Jehovah God. That's what it means. The Alpha and the Omega, the one who is. And that's a good thing. God being the sovereign ruler of all things is a very good thing. It's necessary for the people to whom this letter was originally written to, for them to understand that because they lived in a situation in which it seemed like so much sovereign power was in the hands of the Roman emperor and his empire. And this empire seemed to swallow up everything and seemed to go on and on. But we found out in the course of Revelation what happened to that empire and the world as a whole, didn't we? This great whore of Babylon brought to destruction in a single day, gone. Well, if, uh, even worse than the world, even worse than the Babylonian Empire was a situation of, of course, being persecuted by Satan. And Satan is a little bit worse. He's not a human being. He, he lives far longer than that. He's a fallen angel. He's of great strength. He's been around since the very beginning. He's, great, he's highly experienced in tempting us and calling us away from our Lord. And that's a bigger problem. We just found out what happened to him, didn't we? Into the lake of fire. He's gone. He's no longer there. And in contrast to those things, in contrast to this persecuting Roman Empire, in contrast to Satan himself, this one who's making the offer is going to be around to the very end and beyond it. Because there is no end for him. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Almighty, the Everlasting There is nothing that is beyond him whatsoever. And we need to understand that to be the case. Because all of the things that this world has on offer for us will pass away because it will pass away. All of the things that Satan ever offers you or I will pass away because Satan will pass away. The things that the Son of God offers us will not pass away because he will not pass away. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And he is the one who is making this offer to us. And that is why I think that we read in verse 6, in the beginning of our, our text, it is done. And more literally, these things have come into being. These things have become reality. It's not just a plan. It's not just an intention. It's not just an aspiration. It is reality. We've heard this before with regard to the judgment of the wicked in Revelation 16, when it says, it is done. That's speaking, though, of the judgment of the wicked. Well, now we are hearing it with regard to the blessing of his saints. It is done. It is not an aspiration. It is not just a good intention of God's part. It has happened. Now, we sometimes say things like, consider it done. Me reading something like, it's on the top of my priority list. And I don't see any obstacles to getting this thing done. And it is something I really care about and I think I can do. And I'm working on it as I speak. But it is more than that. Because in the mind of God, it is already done. We must remember that the root of the existence of all real things is the mind of God. That he thinks of these things and decides for these things to be and they will be done. And it is impossible that anything should alter his will in the slightest. It will be done. And moreover, just to add to it, it is already done because it is seen in this revelation. 
You see, do we think that this revelation was just a sort of skit, a drama that was put on for John? And, he, and the Lord asked some angels to, to put, you know, put on some outfits and, and play out different parts and sort of signify things? Or did it actually, is he actually seeing real things? I tend to think it's, it's the latter. I tend to think I don't know exactly how the mechanics of this work, but I think that God has shown to his servant John the things that are going to be. He has seen them. And let me tell you that one of the things that he has seen is that all that has been promised to us actually comes to pass. It is done. It has become reality. It is real. It's as if, as real as if we were already in heaven, in eternity, already enjoying these things and looking back thousands of years in the past at these things. And you would say, well, they were very, these things are very real now. We've, we've seen these things. Well, they're no less real because we're looking forward to them. In some sense, they've already happened. Christ, who is the everlasting God, the Alpha and the Omega, he is the one who is making this offer, and these things are not just as good as done, they are done. Thirdly, then, we ask the question, who is the offer for? Because that's really important, isn't it? Again, we've said, if this offer is good and the man who has made this offer is able, he's qualified in various ways to make this offer, what if it doesn't really apply to us? Just to go back to the example of, rather trivial example of of cars, I remember a friend of mine, uh, there was an amazing offer um, to to, uh, rent a a nice brand new vehicle, lease one for, I think, $50 a month. And, of course, I and everyone else who ever saw that offer said this is obviously too good to be true, didn't even bother pursuing it. But he looked very carefully at the, 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 uh, the close print. And, in fact, it was designed to make sure that no one actually qualified for it. There were actually four different qualifications. You had to be uh, a, an employee of the company or a close relative of an employee of the company. You had to be currently driving one of these exact same vehicles. And there were two other things like that. And I don't think that there was anyone... But this one guy who happened to meet all those qualifications, and sure enough, he drove away with it. Not, not without great difficulty, but he actually did qualify in the end. And it is our impulse when we think of really good offers to say, well, it probably doesn't apply to us. Well, I want you to open your eyes and your minds and think, what, who is this offer for? Read in verse 6 with me, to him who thirsts. Okay? To him who thirsts. Now, if this is indeed to him who thirsts, to the thirsty one, what are we saying here? Well, it's no different than what we heard not so long ago as we were completing the, the series in the book of Isaiah, in 55.1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And that's reiterated in almost the final words of Scripture. In Revelation 22:17, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. And here we are. Here's now this connection. We're not just, it's who is thirsty? Well, it has to do with having desire for water. And so what the Lord is now plainly saying to us is that whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. If you want the offer, then it's yours. It applies to you. The offer is for those who want it. Who are they? Well, you know that 
In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Those who desire something that they do not have. Those who live in a dry and thirsty world. Those who live in an unrighteous world and they live with their own sin. And how they would desire to have Christ's righteousness. How they would desire to be saved. Well, Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And it implies, though, at the moment that they are hungering and thirsting, doesn't it? And that's part of what this offer means. Here's, is anyone excluded from this offer? Yes, those who aren't thirsty. That's right. If you're not thirsty, if you're not hungry, if you have no, no need whatsoever, then the offer is not for you. But if you are experiencing need, not physical need in this sense, it's, a, it's pointing to a spiritual need. But if you're experiencing spiritual need, if your soul is empty, if you desire the righteousness that is on offer, if you desire Christ himself, then this offer is for you. Because, you know, offers of food only sound appealing to those who are hungry. And in particular, offers of water only sound good to those who are thirsty. Because to those who are utterly filled with the things of this world and satisfied with all that they can have, it seems insipid. If you're already drunk, then a glass of cold water doesn't sound so great. But if you've been running in the desert and you're about to keel over because you're thirsty, then the water that is offered to you sounds like the most wonderful offer that could possibly be to those who are thirsty. Now, it is easy to see why we might be thirsty. This is not an uncommon situation like with my friend. It's not something that only happens in a one in a million situation. It is a very common situation that we might be thirsty. Because we live, as it says in Deuteronomy 8, in a, in a dry and thirsty land, in a place of flinty rock, fiery serpents and scorpions, in a thirsty land, a great and terrible wilderness. That was a physical situation back then, and it is a spiritual situation always. Because this world is filled with lies, nothing that will satisfy. It's filled with everything that takes away from us and nothing that really gives. And that's why David says in Psalm 63, 1, God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. There is no water. There is no source of life or help in this place. And we look for it. And it doesn't, it's not found. It's all an illusion. It's just a mirage. There's no real water to be found. And the more we go searching, the more we, we look after these things in the world, the worse it becomes for us. Our thirst increases. And again, just to speak plainly, it's not merely to want things that God can give us, things that are external to him. It is to want God himself. Because God has created us with that inherent need of him. And if we're looking for anything but him, we will be thirsty. And so in Psalm 143, 6, I spread out my hands to you, my soul thirsts for you like a thirsty land. It's not just speaking of the metaphor. We're not just physically thirsty. We're not even searching for things that are like being thirsty, but rather we want God himself because we know that only he can satisfy, can quench this thirst. And so the question is, are you in this category? I can't answer that for you in this case. 
I think that you have every reason to be thirsty. I think that any reasonable person would be thirsty living in such a land, living in such a world, such a life as you have and as I have. You ought to be thirsty. The question is, are you? And I don't know that. I can't answer that. Are you thirsty? If you are thirsty, then this word, this offer is for you. Fourthly and finally, we ask the question, what are the terms? Always looking about this small print, because we've built this offer up. It sounds so amazing. And it is an offer to which, quite literally, nothing could be added. There is nothing. I've thought about it. You tell me again. If you can think of anything that can be added to this offer, let me know. But I don't think there is anything. And it is made to you, thirsty one. Just because you're thirsty, just because you want it, means that you qualify for it. That's the qualification. But what are the terms? How does it become yours? What are the transaction terms here? Because there's always some catch. These adverts that sound so wonderful. Well, verse 6 says, I will give, that's emphasized, I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. And that freely is also emphasized. In the Greek it happens at the end. I will give the water of freedom of life to him who thirsts freely, freely, without cost, free, gratis, no cost. Again, think about that Isaiah 55, 1, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. That wasn't the end of it. It wasn't the end of it. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. When is the last time you've heard an advert saying, you who have no money at all? You who don't have much money, yes, but you who don't have any money at all, come? Hmm, no, no. You who have no money, come and buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price because it is free. This is the gospel of free grace that is an offer here. You don't have to pay for it. There's no work. There's no earning it whatsoever. And look, if, if catches in the terms are all the part of our mercantile situation... Of our, of our adverts and of our consumer society. It's that way with religions, and it always has been. Every false religion, every false theology, every false ideology out there is going to have some sort of work attached to it. And that is the way that we are set up. That is the way we operate. That is our default setting in life, that we have to earn our salvation. And, and if you're outside of Christ, you are at this moment. I can almost guarantee you are thinking that there is some sort of catch that either you believe that you have to earn your salvation or somewhere you actually want to earn your salvation. But that's not the nature of the offer today. There is nothing at all, no work, no earning at all, no money, nothing. It is a free gift that God gives freely to those who desire it. That's the term. I can't add much to it. I don't know how long to go on about this because it's not this, it's not that, it's not the other. It's just simply free. No cost. No transaction. A gift. So to recap, what is an offer? Eternal life, inheritance of all things, and to become a child of God. Who's making the offer? Not some low-level salesman. No, the eternal Son of God, the Alpha and the Omega himself. The beginning and the end. Who is the offer for? 
those who are thirsty. In other words, those who desire it, those who want it. It applies to every last person who wants this water. In the terms, it's utterly free. In fact, it could not possibly be bought by anything that you have. Rather, it is a free gift by grace alone. Now, the simple application is to come and to drink of this water. These words in verse 6 are wonderful enough. If anything, they are exceeded by the words in 22, the, the very, almost the very end of, of the scripture in chapter 22, verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Whoever desires. And I said before, if you aren't thirsty, you ought to be. I've said that we live in a dry and thirsty land. And I also just mentioned something else. Because within our very text, in the same breath, he mentions in verse 8, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And let me say that that is a dry and thirsty land. You know, of all the things that the rich man... In the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, he's in hell. Of all the things that he could desire when he speaks to Abraham and Lazarus, do you know what he says? He doesn't ask for an asbestos suit to, to, uh, to help him with the flames for a moment. Actually, the first thing he asks for is a drop of water to cool his tongue. Because if there ever was a dry and thirsty land, it is certainly hell. And so if your thirst is not already enough in this world where there is no source of living water, there is no source of of spiritual help, then surely it will be in hell. And the greatest of desires that someone there would have is to have this drop of water. If you're not thirsty, you ought to be. But if you are thirsty, then you ought to come and to drink of this water because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the Bride, you know who that is? Those are Christians. Christians like me and others in this place who are proclaiming the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The spirit and the bride, we say, come and let him who hears, let you who hear, take on this message. Say, you come, yes. You know, the wonderful thing about when you receive a message like this, when there's a real offer, is that those who are most excited about it are those who have just received it. Because you understand, you grasp the magnitude of this thing, and you're excited about that. Let him who hears say, come. You relay this message to others. Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. And you will be saved. And you will receive this. Saved, of course, doesn't cover it. We speak of it as a shorthand. You'll be saved. What does it mean? It means everything that I've said. All this offer, these things, being partakers of the Holy Spirit of God and being inheritors of all things, And in fact, to become the son or daughter of the living God, that's yours. If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It couldn't be otherwise. And I want to say, by the way, that there is no other place to go. Because some, you know, the normal response to someone if they receive some sort of good offer to get something is to put it off by comparison shopping. Well, I want to shop around and see if there's something else out there. Well, in this case... 
I'm, I'm pleading with you not to do that. Not because I don't want you to see those other things, because I'm not in the slightest uh, afraid of you doing that. I'd be glad in some sense, if it were all immediately before you, to see all of those other offers as they really are in their true colors, because no one's going to be afraid of those things. They're all empty. But there's a case here where there is no point in comparison shopping, because Christ himself is a fountain of living water. There is no other source of life besides him. And Jeremiah 13 says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. He's saying your great problem is that you're going out trying to find something else besides me to satisfy you. There's nothing there. There's no other source. And we have to say with Peter, when the Lord says to him, Everyone else is leaving. Are you going to leave as well? He says, No, Lord. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He has the words of eternal life because he is the only source of eternal life. And there's no salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than this Lord Jesus Christ. There's absolutely no point in looking around because there is no other source of life. We must come and drink from Jesus Christ. Finally, I just say this, because maybe, maybe there's someone who thought that you almost had me. Because you're looking at the small print with, your, with your, your glass, and you say, He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And you say, well, that doesn't sound so free. It sounds like you have to achieve something. You have to overcome to get it. I knew there was a catch, right? Well, you almost had me. But look at the term one more time. It says, He who overcomes... And what is this overcoming? How does this overcoming, this victory, come about? Well, the answer was back in 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. He, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Ah. See, it's a gift of grace alone, and it's received by faith alone. And that is the victory. That is the overcoming. Simply our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He who believes in Jesus, believes that Jesus is the Son of God, is the one who overcomes. And so in different ways, it is all the same. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And this fountain of living water that is on offer becomes yours. And all the things that have been sped things which can scarcely be described become yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as usual, we have to repent and ask forgiveness for the meanness, the lowliness, lowliness of our thoughts toward you, of making the offer less than what it really is, of denigrating the greatness of the free offer of grace. Well, Lord, we pray that you might supernaturally enlarge our visions and our hearts to see things as they truly are, recognize the greatness and the freeness of this offer. And Lord, how we pray that you'd put our faith directly and firmly in this source of living water. Christ himself, the Holy Spirit, the triune God, you make yourself available to us And Lord God, make us thirst for you. 
Make us thirst and make us come and drink. Lord, your offer is so very free. And there's nothing to be added to it. There's nothing keeping us from it. We pray, Lord God, that you might bring us to drink. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.